0: From the book of Ruth, chapter three. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make known yourself Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives... I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Margaret. Before we look at this passage, let me pray for us. Gracious God, we thank you this time for your word. That you're a God who speaks to his people. That you have a word for us today in the book of Ruth from this very chapter. Lord, we know that your word is truth and is the authority over our lives Lord, we ask for your help now, by your Spirit, that we would both understand and apply this. Apply it to our lives, Lord, by your Spirit, that we would understand. Give me clarity as we work through this passage. We're thankful for it. We lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a quote in your bulletin this morning that's from C.S. Lewis. And that quote comes from the opening of an essay entitled The Weight of Glory, where Lewis writes... If you asked 20 good people today what they thought the highest of the virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you had asked almost any of the great Christians of old, they would have replied, love. Lewis asked the question, if we, if we see what's happened here, a negative term has been substituted for a positive. A negative idea of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves, as if our abstinence and not the other's happiness was the important point. Lewis writes, I don't think this is the Christian virtue of love. Lewis's words are helpful for us as we look at the third act of Ruth this morning. Because this chapter, as we'll soon see, has everything to do with securing good things for others. Or as Lewis might have put it, has everything to do with love. As we've worked our way through the book of Ruth, we've tried to be mindful to see how God's hidden hand has been upon these characters and how, by his providence, he's been upholding and directing their lives. So if you remember last week, we saw this with this little phrase, "'She so happened.'" Ruth heading out to the fields to glean grain for Naomi just so happened to come to the field of Boaz. But this wasn't chance, and it wasn't luck, and it wasn't coincidence. It was God. In reading chapter 3, it seems like our characters are finally beginning to see that, particularly Naomi, who's been in such a dark place for most of this book, she now begins to turn a corner. John Maxwell has this quote where he says, people change when they're hurt enough that they have to, when they learn enough that they want to, or when they receive enough that they're able to. And I think we see Naomi fit into all of these categories. She's been wrestling with God over the loss of her family. She's been hurt and bitter and empty. But at the end of chapter 2, she learns some new information that causes her to think differently about her situation. She learns about Ruth's new employer, Boaz, astonished that Ruth would just so happen to find her way to this relative of Naomi's late husband, Elimelech. Perhaps the most shocking part of this, though, is not the news itself, but the fact that Naomi confesses that this, that this providential encounter was the Hesed of the Lord, the loving kindness of God, that God had not forsaken her and her family. Here, the wheels start to turn in Naomi's mind to think, maybe God hasn't left me. He's given me reason to hope. And it's the Lord's loving kindness that we see at the end of chapter 2 that moves our characters to act in our passage this morning. As people who know the love of God, they show the love of God by securing good things for one another. And we see this really unfold in three ways. We see it unfold in a risky plan that's devised by Naomi. We see it unfold in a bold request that's made by Ruth. And we see it unfold in the caring commitment of Boaz for these two women. People who know the love of God show the love of God. So let's start by looking at Naomi's risky plan in verses 1 through 5. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter... Should I not seek rest for you, that it might be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young woman you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak, go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And Ruth replied, all that you say, I will do. If you were to sit down with your Bible this afternoon and read straight through the book of Ruth, it probably wouldn't take you more than 10 minutes to do that, to read it from start to finish. But When you finish chapter two and start chapter three, you might be tempted to think that chapter three is a continuation of the conversation Ruth and Naomi are having at the end of chapter two after her workday. The then that begins chapter 3 just makes it seem like things are just rolling right along. I think it's important for us to pay attention to the time clues that the author has given us throughout the book so we have a frame of reference to work with. We know that Ruth and Naomi returned to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. We see that at the end of chapter 1, verse 22. That Ruth continued gleaning in Boaz's fields until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. We see that at the end of chapter 2 verse 23. And now in chapter 3, we've come to the end of that barley harvest, chapter 3, verse 2. And I point this out so that we don't think that Naomi is making some sort of snap decision after hearing Ruth's news about Boaz. It's likely that Ruth had several weeks to digest and to ponder how the Lord was working in all of this before she comes to Ruth with her plan. And that plan, if we look at it, is essentially a take two of what we saw in chapter one, when Naomi urged Ruth to stay in Moab, that the Lord might give her rest and give her a husband and give her a hope and a future. Here in chapter three, we see Naomi with a rekindled interest in seeking good things for her daughter, Ruth. It's actually funny if we, if we think about this. Naomi's tactics have changed since chapter one to chapter three. Initially, Naomi is just commanding Ruth that she needs to stay, that she needs to go back and return to Moab. But not here. Naomi's displaying the smooth skills of a seasoned saleswoman, drawing Ruth in with a series of leading questions to where Ruth has no choice but to agree with her. My daughter, should I not? Seek rest for you, that it might be well with you? What do we expect Ruth to say? No. Is Boaz not our relative? Well, we've, we've just confirmed that, so he is. Naomi poses these questions almost as if to say, well, if A is true and B is true, well, then maybe you should listen to what I have to say. But before we go further talking about Naomi's plan to get Ruth and Boaz together, Let's understand Boaz's role in all of this. In chapter 2, verse 20, Naomi calls Boaz a close relative, one of our redeemers. We might see this in other places as the title kinsman-redeemer. And A kinsman-redeemer was a person who had an obligation to buy his relatives back if they sold themselves into slavery to pay off their debt. Under certain circumstances, the kinsman-redeemer would also be obligated to marry his brother's widow to raise a family up for the deceased. But Ruth's situation falls into a bit of a gray area. It's not unlike what we saw last week with the laws concerning the included and excluded others in Israel, those who were and were not able to glean grain. Here we have another situation where several Old Testament laws need to be interpreted to account for Ruth's situation. So if we think about it, if Boaz was legally obligated to care for Ruth under the law, all she would need to do is make him aware of it and expect him, and we would expect him to based on the character that we've seen, to uphold the law, otherwise risking shaming himself. I think that's why we actually see Naomi devise this risky plan because Boaz really had no legal obligation to do anything for Ruth or Naomi. It's a plan that I would argue rests more on Boaz's character than on good execution. And we'll see that in just a moment. But for now, let's think about what Naomi was asking Ruth to do. What was the plan? It really unfolds in two parts. Part one, she tells Ruth to do four things. Wash, anoint yourself, put on a cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but be quiet about it until all the evening festivities have have died down. That seems simple enough, part one, take a bath, splash on some perfume, get dressed and go. Some commentators will try to point out that what Naomi was telling Ruth to do was to look her best so that she could woo Boaz or seduce him that evening. Usually this interpretation goes hand in hand with the idea that Ruth and Boaz do indeed have sex when they meet at the threshing floor. I think both of these suggestions fall apart pretty quickly when you consider how the author has gone to great lengths to build up these characters for us. Ruth and Boaz are portrayed throughout the book as models of hesed, as two people who show us what it looks like to seek good things for others, no matter the cost. They're pictured as two people who are committed to the Lord, Ruth by her oath, taking refuge in God as her God, and Boaz through his upbringing in Israel. So why would Naomi ask Ruth to seduce Boaz when the plan that she's suggesting is risky enough? Ruth's presence at the threshing floor, even her most modest of actions, could easily be taken the wrong way as it is. I think Naomi's instructions for Ruth to wash, anoint, dress, and go are not unlike what we saw with David in 2 Samuel 12. David, living in the consequences of his sin with Bathsheba, is told by the prophet Nathan that the child that he and Bathsheba had together would die. And in the following verses, we read that that child does indeed become sick and dies. And after mourning over his child's death, we find David do several things. He washes. He anoints himself, he changes, he worships the Lord, and then he eats. So what are the parallels with Ruth's situation? I think the parallels to Ruth seem to be this pattern of wash, anoint, and dress as a mark of a a reset of sorts after tragedy. We can only presume that Ruth has mourned for her husband for some time, and at Naomi's encouragement, has now reached a point where she's ready to take a step forward after that loss as almost a reset. Life after loss of any kind is hard to think about. There's no real prescriptive rule for how we are to handle it individually. What is the appropriate time to mourn after loss? I do appreciate Dale Ralph Davis's comments as we think about this. It's a long quote, but it's helpful. He says, grief, mourning, loss, can be crippling. And it's true that the greater the love for the lost, the greater the grief. And it is far too often that God asks us to learn the lesson of sorrow. If we read the Psalms, this becomes clear to us. We should ask ourselves in light of Ruth's mourning over the loss of her husband, and David's mourning over the loss of his child, how are we prepared to handle our grief? For our sorrow can be difficult as it is, but it will truly be crippling unless we know that there is a God who walks with us and stands for us amid these hardships. What allows us to reset after an appropriate time of mourning? It is simply God's grace. This is the thing that God delights to do, is to show grace to His children. Through all of our sins and all of our messes, God's overriding character to us is one of grace, that we would know that in Christ he is with us and that there is nothing that can separate us from him. What allows Ruth to reset after the loss of her husband is the hidden hand of God's grace through his providential care of her and Naomi. Ruth had a sense of God's grace through the way in which he was working in her life. The same is true for us. We can know God's grace, know it by what he has told us is true, but we also experience God's grace as he sustains us day by day. This knowing and experiencing allows us, like Ruth, like David, to walk in hope even during our deepest sorrows." Because of her love for her daughter, Naomi is seeking good things for Ruth, rest and wellness and a future. So she asks Ruth to take a step, not because she or Ruth are strong enough or courageous enough, but because they have seen and experienced the love of God by his hidden hand of grace through, this providential, through his providential care of them. He's working out the details of their lives for their good. All of this is rooted In the gracious love of God. That's part one. Part two of Naomi's plan is where we see the risk meter skyrocket. In fact, I would imagine most of us, as Margaret read the passage for us this morning, you probably thought, this is a terrible plan. How is this ever going to work? There are far too many ways in which Ruth's actions could be misinterpreted. Are we to believe that Ruth is just going to sneak in when Boaz is laid down with a full belly and a bit of a a buzz from the wine and just tuck herself in down at his feet, just wait? From the perspective of an outsider looking in, it seems really like history is repeating itself. If you have time this afternoon, go read Genesis 19, 30 to 38. You'll see why. But Ruth follows the plan to a T. What she told Naomi is true, all that you say I will do, all except one detail. Rather than wait on Boaz, she makes a bold request, and we hear the story pick up in verse 8. At midnight, Boaz was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? She answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Boaz was startled when he woke up in the middle of the night. You might know that feeling. You wake up to find a pet or a small child in your face who wasn't there when you drifted off to sleep. Only in Boaz's case, it was a young woman laying at his feet. His response, who are you, seems appropriate. But Ruth doesn't miss a step. She doesn't hesitate. I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This is where Ruth calls an audible. She changes the plan using almost identical language to what Boaz uses in chapter 2, verse 12, when he tells Ruth, a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have taken refuge. So what's, what's Ruth asking of Boaz here? when she requests that Boaz will be a refuge for her. Essentially, Ruth's popping the question. She's, She's proposing, asking him to act according to the spirit of the law of a kinsman redeemer. Even though Boaz wasn't under any legal obligation to do it, she's asking him, be the family member who, at his own cost, as an act of God's hesed, will provide good things for me and my family rest and wellness and a future, even though you don't have to do it. Be that person. I'm pretty confident nobody has an engagement story on par with Ruth and Boaz. But I think if you asked most, if you, if you pulled most of the guys in here, even some of the women who may have followed in Ruth's footsteps proposing to their husbands, the scariest moment and most nerve-wracking moment is, is not the will you marry me part. It's the time that lingers in between the question and the answer. How is Boaz going to respond to this? Is she going to get shooed away, or is he going to accept? And the surprise in the passage is not that Boaz accepts Ruth's proposal. The surprise in the passage, well, we almost expect that he would accept the proposal, being the honorable man that he is. But the surprise in the passage is that he blesses Ruth for asking. He blesses her, saying that her proposal is a greater act of hesed, a greater act of kindness than the act of loving care that she showed to Naomi when she bound herself to her mother-in-law until death do they part while they were still in Moab. Boaz, in calling this proposal a greater act of kindness, a greater act of love, seems to be taken aback by the fact that Ruth chose him. She could have chosen anyone she wanted. She could have chosen a younger man, whether he be rich or whether he be poor. But she didn't. She chose Boaz. And in that way, Ruth sought good things for Boaz in allowing him to fulfill his role as a redeemer. And Boaz will return that love, as we'll see in a moment, by seeking good things for Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Here we see an approach to romantic relationships that breaks the mold of Nicholas Sparks and Hallmark. Sorry if you like Nicholas Sparks or Hallmark. In the words of commentator Ian Duguid, the story of Boaz and Ruth is not really a love story at all, at least not in the modern sense. It's not a story about boy meets girl in which both are physically attracted to one another and the rest is just a history of passionate kisses and a life viewed through a romantic haze. The book of Ruth is a different kind of story than we're used to. The commitment that Ruth and Boaz had to one another was built on their common character, which is always a much better foundation for lasting relationships than mere physical attraction. Theirs was a character match. They were both people of substance. When Christians talk about what they're looking for in a spouse— Their lists are not always replete with spiritual characteristics. In fact, it often emerges that a different list actually has priority in practice, a list in which beauty and outward charm turn out to be non-negotiable. Boaz and Ruth seem to have a far more biblical agenda in this area than most. I think there's something that we can take from this into our relationships, whether we're, we're dating, whether we're pursuing marriage, whether we're married, that when for dating that if men as you pursue women look at the women who love the lord and show show the love of christ in their character likewise women pursue men who love the lord and show the love of christ in his character in our marriages love the characteristics in your spouse that reflect christ and point you to the goodness of god and celebrate how the spirit is growing them in holiness and christ likeness We might say, well, well, what if my spouse isn't a Christian? And I think the Apostle Paul makes an argument for us that we are to still reflect the character of Christ to them, that they would see and experience the goodness of God through you. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Once Boaz regains his composure after Ruth's bold proposal, He assures her that he's going to do everything that she's asked him to do. He's going to seek her welfare, and he's going to be her redeemer. But there's a catch. Boaz tells us that there is another closer relative to the family than he is. And this man should have the first opportunity to redeem Ruth and Naomi if he so wished. Either way, Ruth is going to be redeemed. But for now, Boaz tells her to rest the night knowing that her care is in his hands, and in the morning, it'll all be worked out. The chapter closes with verses 14 through 18, where we read, So Ruth lay at his feet until morning, and arose before one could recognize another, and he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring your garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went into the city I imagine that was a restless night's sleep for Ruth, considering the adrenaline rush of going down to the threshing floor and proposing to a man that you've only known for maybe a month. But the striking thing in this final section is the fact that what Boaz does, and he takes on the responsibilities of a redeemer through his committed care for Ruth and Naomi. And just briefly, we see this in two ways. First, we see this in the way that Boaz cares for Ruth's reputation. Throughout her time in Bethlehem, Ruth has built a name for herself as a worthy woman, and Boaz is not willing to let that reputation be tarnished by someone seeing her leave the threshing floor and misunderstanding why Ruth was there and what her intentions were. So to avoid any tabloid gossip, Boaz tells Ruth, leave early before anyone would know that you were here. But before she goes, Boaz sends her off with a care package, six measures of barley to give to Naomi. And so we see Boaz in a very real way step into the shoes of a redeemer in seeking good things for these two women. And so chapter three ends much the same way chapter two ended with Ruth and Naomi catching up after an eventful night. And as has become the trend in this series in Ruth, chapter three closes with our characters left waiting, with a big to be continued at the bottom of the page. And as the curtain closes on act three, Naomi reminds Ruth that though there is still a lot that needs to be resolved, the situation is left in the committed hands of a man who will not rest until Ruth finds rest. And so the theme of this whole chapter is again emphasized. In a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, we find three characters who, knowing the love of God, show the love of God to one another by seeking good things for them. From where you you and I are right now, we find no better display of this truth than in Christ. We read that God so loved the world, and he so loved the world to the extent that he sent us his only son, that through Jesus' death and resurrection, he would secure good things for all of those whom he loves. Forgiveness from sin, communion with God, everlasting life, but to name a few. But there's a verse that we read in Hebrews chapter 12 that should jump out to us when we think about Jesus securing good things for his people. And it's Hebrews 12:2 where we read, for the joy, for the joy that was set before Christ, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The Puritan writer Thomas Goodwin has a little book called The Heart of Christ, where he writes that Christ's own joy, Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by, by what? What would you expect to follow those words? That's the question that Dane Ortland asks in a book that we're going to make available to everyone in just a few weeks, titled Gentle and Lowly. But go ahead and take a second. Take a second to think about it. Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by what? Goodwin writes that Christ's joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by his showing grace and mercy. The fact that he showed grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth under all their infirmities. Christ's joy was to seek good things for those he loves through his works of redemption. And Orland gives this illustration of a compassionate doctor who's traveled to the far depths of the jungle to provide medical care for a primitive tribe afflicted by a contagious disease. He's had his medical equipment flown in, he's correctly diagnosed the problem, and the antibiotics are prepared and available. He's independently wealthy and he has no need of any kind of financial compensation. But as he seeks to provide care, the afflicted refuse it. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. Until finally a few brave souls step forward to receive the care that is being freely provided. And what does the doctor feel? Joy. Joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. That's the whole reason he came. When we come to Jesus seeking the good things that he freely offers to us through his gospel of grace, his perfect life of righteousness credited to us, his sacrificial death cleansing us from sin, his glorious resurrection assuring our hope in eternity, his spirit powerfully working in our lives, When we come to Jesus seeking these things that are ours through faith, he is delighted. As people who know the love of the Lord, who know the good things that are ours in Jesus, we long for others to know the spiritual treasures that are only found in Christ. Yet as we've seen throughout our passage this morning, knowing the goodness of God moves us also to show the goodness of God in tangible ways. That flowing out of Christ's love for us and our love for him, we should be a people who seeks what is right and good and just and honorable for others. Jesus has given us the ultimate good. He's given us himself. And as a people who know and love God through Christ we too must show that very same love of Jesus to others. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving God, of your own will and perfect plan, sought good things for sinners like us. Lord, we give you thanks for Jesus and all of his benefits that are ours as a free gift of grace by faith alone. Lord, as we wrap our head around the great joy that is brought to you when sinners come to you in seeking and finding the good gifts that are found in Jesus, help us to be a people who extend good things and seek good things to others. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for your word. Let it instruct us in every area of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.